0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Good afternoon and welcome to At Yale Live. I'm Eric Gershon. Capuchin monkeys reveal more about you and all of us than we might think because we're just not as different as we might like to think. Yale psychologist Lori Santos studies capuchins and other animals to gain insight into the evolution of the human mind. Today she'll talk with us about some of what she's learned as always, we'll take some of your questions. You can tweet us at Yale, or email us at socialmedia at Yale.edu. Laurie, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So I guess my first question and uh, would be, why capuchins?
1: Yeah, so, so the main question we're interested in is what is it that makes humans tick? Why are we so special? You know, Why are we the only species that are running Yale Live question and answer sessions, and no other critter on the planet is doing this? This is a really big issue. Um, we try to tackle that question by trying to take an evolutionary approach, to try to turn to one of our closest living relatives and ask, what do they know about the world, how do they make sense of it, and how does that differ or how is it similar to some of the ways that humans do it? And capuchin monkeys, it turns out, are a pretty good model for this. Uh, for one reason, they're one of our close evolutionary relatives, being another non-human primate species. Um, But another reason is that as a primate species they turn out to be pretty good in a couple different ways. One is that they're pretty socially sophisticated species, they live in complex social groups, turns out they're really good problem solvers, they actually use tools a lot in the wild, and that makes them a really good model for studying human cognition in a lot of ways. Um, so we've kind of turned to them to say, okay, this is a great primate model to kind of study how cognition works in a non-human mind. And then we can kind of compare and contrast that with humans. How big are they? Um, they're kind of, you know, s- small dog, big cat size. Okay. Um, and that's, that's nice because it makes them a little bit more convenient to study than our closest living relatives, say chimpanzees and bonobos, who are mm-hmm. just kind of larger and oftentimes a little bit more dangerous species, too.
0: hmm now, you focus uh, in a lot of your research on decision making. Mm-hmm. Um, are we a little bit less evolved than we might think? That is, uh, are they making pretty sophisticated uh, decisions, very similar to the kinds of decisions we make for, for better or ill?
1: Yeah. So we got into this question about decision making uh, in part because when we started doing this work, it was around the time of the financial collapse, and you saw a lot of folks on news programs making all these claims about why we were making such bad decisions with money and investments yeah. and so on. Um, And that got us thinking about where these kinds of strategies come from. Um, Could it be that perhaps some of the the smart things we do with money are cases where we might see similarities with capuchins, Um, but not just the smart cases, also these cases where we're doing kind of irrational or dumber Mm -hmm. things with money. Um, And so we decided to say, wow, can we actually study whether they share some of the same smart and dumb strategies Mm -hmm. that we do? Um, The first problem with this approach, though, is that uh, of course, these guys don't naturally use money. <laughs> um, so we had this methodological problem of how could we ask them about their finances and their financial risk-taking if they don't use something like a real currency. Um, and so teaming up with an economist, Keith Chen, um, and my student, Venkat and I, we decided to introduce a novel currency to this group of capuchin monkeys that we work with. We um, gave them these little metal washers um, that they could use as their own capuchin money. And we taught them that they could trade these washers with humans for food. Um, Surprisingly, they picked us up much more quickly than we expected, Mm -hmm. um, with just a little bit of – they're naturally curious creatures, so they'll kind of pick up these weird tokens and say, kind of, what are these things? Um, And then they quickly realize, oh, I can trade this with a human for some delicious food. Um, With just that training, we sort of plopped our capuchin monkeys into their own market. Um, so a capuchin monkey, they live in kind of a big social enclosure with their, their friends. When they get hungry, they could kind of tunnel out to come into the study. And when they arrived there, they had a little wallet of tokens. Uh, and they could trade not just with one person, but with a bunch of different people who were selling different foods at different mm-hmm. prices. And we could ask these standard questions that economists ask. You know, do they, capuchin monkeys care about price? Do they care about risk? Um, are they kind of maximizing their capuchin dollar? Um, and in all of those cases, the surprising answer seemed to be yes, they're smart about their own capuchin token economy in a lot of the same ways we are. Um, they, they pay attention to price, they go for the cheaper option, they can kind of maximize their, their wealth level across these different goods. Uh, but this, the sad, perhaps, and sort of somewhat surprising thing was that they also seem to be irrational about their money in the same spots that people are irrational. Um, so one thing we found is that the capuchin monkeys tend to pay too much attention to loss. This is a phenomenon that behavioral economists refer to. Loss aversion? Loss yeah. aversion. Exactly. You know, People are so averse to loss and that this causes them to do sometimes crazy things in markets like it causes uh, human consumers to take on more risk. So you become more risky when you're, you have this possibility of going into the red. And what we found out was that our capuchin monkeys in their market did the same thing. Mm. If they faced an experimenter who was giving losses, they tended to seek out more risk than they otherwise would have liked to do. Um, how did that
0: manifest itself in your experiment yeah. and then maybe an example of how that manifests among humans?
1: Yeah, so in, in the case of humans, I could give you different scenarios about Um, choices you could make that have safe options or risky options. So let's say uh, you're trying to come up with a program to combat some sort of terrible disease. Mm -hmm. And I could say, well, this one option would, if there's 600 people whose lives are at stake, this one would um, save 200 people for sure, or you'd have a risky program where sometimes it would save, you know, two-thirds of the time it would save all 600 and one third of the time it would save nobody. Um, And the question is, what do you pick? And what you find is when you're framing this in terms of the number of lives that would be saved, people say, uh, I should go with the safe option here and save as many people for sure as I can. Mm. Um, This shows us that we're kind of avoiding a risk. However, if I frame the same problem in terms of the number of lives that would be lost, this sort of activates your loss aversion. Mm. So now for sure, 400 people are gonna die for sure in one option, or in the other case, you know there's a, a third a chance that, no, that everybody will die and a second chance that nobody will die. And what you find is that people tend to gravitate towards the more risky option in that case, mm. even though the probabilities are exactly the same across the two. And the idea there is that we're so averse to losing that we wanna go with the chance that nobody will die, even if overall that forces us to take on more risk than we would like. Um, of course, with the monkeys, we can't give them weird scenarios about how many yeah. people are gonna die or, or live, um, and so what we do is give them options in their market where the monkeys are trading with people who deliver more or less food than the monkeys expect. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they're gonna get the same amount of food, but sometimes they're receiving more than they expect, which feels like extra, it feels like you're kind of going into the black. Sometimes they're getting cases where they're receiving less than they expect. And so this feels bad. It feels like they're losing some.
0: So, so some of what you're doing reminds me a lot of behavioral economics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, have you have you been working with Bob A say? Or, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Daniel Kahneman maybe a- Princeton, right?
1: Yeah, so this work was really directly inspired by yeah. saying, let's take these fantastic cases that Danny Kahneman and others have yeah. used and translate them into ways we can ask the monkeys in their own market. Mm. And so really what we, we, what we quite literally did was, you know, grab a famous Kahneman paper, figure out his scenarios, and then say, how can we ask that with monkeys and tokens? And when we directly translate those scenarios into monkey terms, we see not just the same kind of effect that the monkeys are loss-averse and so on, but almost even the same magnitude of an effect. Um, so Kahneman and colleagues have famously found that we kind of emotionally pay attention to losses about two times more than we do gains, hmm. and we see almost exactly that same magnitude of an effect in the monkeys too. Um, so kind of qualitatively and in some ways quantitatively similar performance.
0: Now, your colleague uh, here at, at Yale, Karen Wynn, studies uh, infant uh, cognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, have You noticed any similarities between the way infants learn uh, and uh, the the capuchin monkeys learn?
1: Yeah, so I mean the the project of studying human infants Mm -hmm. is conceptually really similar to the project of studying monkeys. They're both interested in this question of where does our cognition come from? You know Where do the many smart things that we do come from, and, and in some cases some of the dumber things that we do? And one of the things we've seen when you look across what's the earliest cognition in development, and that would be the case of babies, mm-hmm. versus the earliest cognition over evolution in the case of capuchin monkeys, you see a set of abilities that seem to be shared across the two. Um, so Karen Wynn has famously done. Uh, some work looking at the origins of our numerical capacities. How is it that we learn to add and subtract? Mm -hmm. And what she's famously found is that from a very young age, about six months, it seems like babies can compute the answers to simple arithmetic problems. Mm -hmm. Um, Turns out you see the same kinds of abilities in non-human animals. And about the limits that you see babies performing correctly on these addition and subtraction tests, you see exactly those same limits in non-human primates too. Um, and so the claim is that in a couple different domains, uh, both in the number domain and in some cases in the physical domain, you see these similar capacities and sim- similar signature limits across the infant human infants on the one hand and non-human primates on the other. Mm-hmm. And the claim by some researchers has been that there might be some sort of core knowledge or core abilities that we all bring to the table, whether you're a human or a non-human primate. And that the key thing about being a human is that somehow those initial abilities that you bring to the table through evolution um, get built upon. They serve as the foundation for these later things that we learn, perhaps uniquely as our own species.
0: I wanted to ask you about the term cognition. Uh, is Do psychologists have a very specific definition in mind when they talk about cognition as opposed to the, the sort of everyday use of the word? I
1: think it's pretty similar to the everyday use of the word. I mean, really what we mean when we think about cognition is how we... Uh, represent information, think about it, and the strategies we use to kind of build on it. Mm -hmm. Um, So the term cognition covers things like um, the way we uh, think about the world, the way we use strategies to explain the world, the way we represent the world. Um, Usually if I'm talking to a layperson, I'm talking about the cognitive studies I do, they're like, oh yeah, cognition, I kind of, I get what you mean, yeah. You
0: do your studies both in the lab and also in the wild. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the differences in those, the experiments you're able to do in the lab versus in the wild, and the differences in what you learn in one context versus the other?
1: Yeah, and so so I think of these two approaches as really complementary in a lot of ways. Um, take the capuchin uh, token studies we did. If we were working with capuchins who were wild living, it'd be nearly impossible for us to do those studies, right? We'd, you know, the capuchins are arboreal guys, so they'd be kind of off up in the trees and be like, take the token, take the token, you know? Um, So there's there's a kind of methodological precision that you only get in laboratory settings. However with that comes the downside that you're really limited in some of the kinds of questions you can ask. You're limited in the sort of ecological validity you have um, for exploring these kinds of questions because the animals are are doing the kinds of experiments you do but in this very restricted context. Um, By trying to study cognition both in naturally living situations and in the lab you kind of get the best of both worlds and that's sort of the approach that that we've been trying to do, um, both working with capuchin monkeys uh, in captivity, um, but also with free-ranging rhesus macaques who live very naturalistically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do this at a at a, an island site in Puerto Rico known as Cayo Santiago.
0: Okay, so uh, could you give us an example of the uh, the kind of experiment, just in brief, that you might run in the wild, mm-hmm. and what and something that you've learned from one of those experiments?
1: Yeah, so I'll tell you about uh, the wild version of what Karen Wynn's been doing, say, with her babies. Um, So we can ask whether these free-ranging rhesus macaques understand something about number using exactly the same method that Karen Wynn did. Um, What she does is she brings babies into the lab and she shows them magical events. So she'll show them one Mickey Mouse doll goes into a box and then the second one is added into the box while it's covered up and then she can reveal the number of objects there. And the idea is that if babies know that one mickey mouse plus one mickey mouse equals two they should expect there to be two and what you find is that they're surprised and look longer in cases where there's only one mickey mouse so when one
0: so so there's an analysis of the the length of time that they're staring at one exactly
1: so she videotapes the baby's reaction Mm -hmm. and can and time it later Um, we do this exactly the same way with our macaques at the field site um it's a little bit different because we have our little magic stage and we have to hike around this big island but we find monkeys who are kind of you know sort of sitting there bored and ask them, you know, would you like a dinner show with your food that you're eating and sort of plop down um, and do exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. So you can add one eggplant to a box with a second eggplant and then reveal different outcomes. Um, And what's been shown at the field site is that in fact monkeys will react the same way. So they look for uh, a short amount of time if one eggplant plus one eggplant equals two um, and for a much longer time if one eggplant plus one eggplant equals one or Mm -hmm. if one eggplant plus one eggplant equals three. Um, Again, suggesting that some very similar capacities are there in the babies and the monkeys. Mm -hmm. Um, And the cool thing is that we can use exactly the same sorts of experimental methods as we can with the monkeys as we can with human infants. So it allows for this really precise comparison across the two groups.
0: i I'm going to take a question uh, from viewers. Mm -hmm. Uh, This one comes to us uh, by Twitter uh, from at Ann33rd, and she asks, Uh, whether uh, you believe that animals have feelings or not?
1: Mm -hmm. For sure I believe that animals have feelings. I mean, I feel like any human who's watching the animals can't help but interpret their behavior as um, built on different kinds of emotions and feelings and beliefs and desires and so on. The trick as a scientist is to figure out how we can determine that for sure. Um, And that gets a little bit trickier because we have to have methods that can allow us to measure those things. Um, The method I was just telling you about where we're showing the monkeys these events and watching their looking tells us something about the monkeys' surprise towards events, we think, or their expectations about events. Um, Directly measuring the the monkeys' experiences or their feelings gets trickier, um, but more and more researchers are developing some cool techniques to do that. So I naturally, like most humans who watch these animals, have an intuitive, fast belief that they're experiencing the same kinds of things that I am. And I, I deeply believe that they do. Measuring it is a trickier task. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a scientist, to, to make strong claims about that, this is one of the things that we need to, to find ways to do.
0: What, uh, of I mean, human beings experience a wide range of feelings, mm-hmm. some of which are very subtle. What are the feelings that... Um, psychologists are initially thinking they might try to study and measure? In non-human in, animals, in yeah. Non-human
1: animals. Uh, well, there's been a lot of work focused on trying to get at not, uh, emotions in non-human animals, mm-hmm. trying to see if they have the sorts of basic emotions that we have. Um, a lot of this sort of work analyzes how the animals communicate about different emotions and sort of uses uh, their vocalizations to get a sense of this stuff. Um, but there are some rich questions about whether animals have other kinds of more complex emotions um, things like guilt um, mm-hmm. things things like uh, schadenfreude is one that's come mm-hmm. up in our lab you know do they like to see bad things happen to individuals oh, do they, they, they don't take like joy
0: in, yeah exactly
1: yeah. and so so I think this is going to be the holy grail of studying animal feelings is to ask this question whether they have these more complicated kinds of emotions mm-hmm. that humans have um, ones that we we sometimes think of, at least in passing, as human unique.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you found that monkeys clearly outsmart humans in any way, in any particular task or way?
1: Yeah. So this this is a question we get a lot, particularly when we show all these cases where monkeys are. As irrational as humans, yeah. people say, are there spots where monkeys are more rational than humans? Um, and so far we've found uh, one spot in the context of the monkey economy where we see them uh, outsmarting people, um, and that has to do with how people react to price. Um, so one of the irrationalities that behavioral economists look at uh, has to do with these cases where the price of an object can affect how much you like it. Um, not because a better, higher price object is actually better, but just because the price itself is affecting your preference. Um, so, if in our little water glasses here we had you know, delicious wine instead of water, I could affect how you subjectively experience mm-hmm. that wine just by telling you it's more expensive. I could probably do that with the water too. If I told you oh, it's just tap water, it would taste less good than if I told you we bought, you know, very expensive Evian water mm-hmm. for this, you know, fantastic Yale Live event. Um, and there's this fantastic neuroscience work showing that. It's not just your self-report of how good this experience is for higher-priced items. You can actually look using these neuroscientific techniques at how somebody's reward area fires when you're experiencing this. And what you find is that just by telling you something's higher-priced, a wine or a piece of chocolate or so on, you actually experience it in your very reward areas as better.
0: Physiologically. Physiologically, the
1: same wine will taste better if I just tell you it's higher-priced than if it's not. Um, And so this was something we wanted to look at in the monkeys. Do they like higher priced goods too? And we had this wonderful opportunity to ask this question because we showed in our earlier work that the monkeys really understand price in their markets. Mm. They shift correctly based on the the price of a good. They, They buy more of the cheaper good. They seem to understand price in the way that an economist might want them to understand it. And so we said given that they understand price, if we show them some new food and we tell them it's more expensive will they get tripped up just like humans will they like the the same good better when they think it's more expensive mm-hmm. and we did about four or five studies on this and found that across the board it seems like the monkeys are just not susceptible to this bias they like different foods depending on their own personal preferences but telling them a, a, a food is higher price doesn't affect their preference um in some ways the monkeys seem to be more rational about mm-hmm. price and value than humans do
0: i suppose that in Among humans, w- when something gets priced higher it 's no longer a commodity, right It becomes a status symbol of some sort, so perhaps the monkeys it seems are less susceptible to
1: yeah that, that would, kind of that's one interpretation, um, although that too is shocking because we know that they Uh, They care a lot about status and hierarchy Hmm. in terms of their rank. What it seems like more is that the monkeys might not be learning their preferences from other individuals in a lot of the same ways that humans do. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is one of the things that, that we're really interested in exploring in other species now is this issue of how much do you learn from other social agents and this question of the extent to which humans are unique at picking up our preferences from others, conforming to others' preferences, and so on. We've talked a lot
0: about capuchin monkeys. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are there other animals that that you study or uh, that you expect to reveal a a lot of other interesting aspects of the way our minds have developed.
1: Yeah, this, this is a nice transition, sort of based on some of this work on social learning, because uh, one of the the new animal populations that we're turning to now to look at, the, in particular, at these questions of social learning um, are our own pet dogs. Um, so, domesticated dogs turn out to be this fantastic new population that comparative researchers are turning to, uh, in part because even though they're not Especially close evolutionary relatives, you know, we're, we're on the mammal tree with dogs, but they're pretty distantly related. It turns out because dogs grow up in very human like environments, they might provide this fantastic window to ask what the role of those environmental experiences might be like. Um, you know, so your domesticated dog, just like a human child, will grow mm. up in a world of human artifacts. They'll be present when there's this rich human communication going on. Um, and it turns out that through domestication, they also seem to be very built to pay particular attention to human cues. And the question is given that they're, they live in these environments, they're shaped to pick up on these cues. Are they learning in some of the same ways as a human child might learn? Hmm. Um, and so we are now moving towards doing more uh, dog cognition work. Um, and I'm happy to announce that we will be opening Yale's first canine cognition center. Canine cognition center. Canine cognition center. Um, this is not the dogs that we have on premises. We actually need your viewers to help us out because we're hoping that folks will bring in their companion animals. Your your dog can come in. For about an hour, half hour, um, and do some little problem solving games. Uh, and that will teach us how your dog thinks about the world.
0: Are you looking for any particular kind of dogs or all uh, dogs? Or? We're,
1: we're pretty equal opportunity. Um, one of the things we're really interested in looking at is if you see different cognitive differences across different breeds. Mm. Um, and in fact, there's some hints that uh, some of the ways that breeds have been shaped over evolutionary time, whether you're a breed that's shaped to be cute versus you're a breed that's shaped to work alongside a human being, that might shape different kinds of cognitive abilities. Um, and so we're expecting to, to look for breed differences. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, we're really in, in equal opportunity Canine Cognition Center, and we think we have a lot to learn from all the different breeds that are out there.
0: So, are, are you shifting somewhat um, the the focus of your research to uh, how humans influence learning mm-hmm. among, in this case, dogs, and then presumably we we could extrapolate somewhat to to. to, to, to small children?
1: Exactly. I think...
0: And, each, and grown-ups, for that matter.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the nice things about, about dogs relative to primates is that they're, they're very built to pay attention to human cues. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a striking thing when you work with primates, is that uh, they're willing to, to gain information from you, but they're not as much expecting you to kind of communicate that information to them. So they can kind of learn from others, but they're not cued into all kinds of different cues. Um, Just to give you one example with our capuchin monkeys, um, even though these guys are really motivated to find food and so on, they do really bad in a test where, say you're a capuchin monkey and I've hidden some food and I'm pointing and looking at one location. They Mm -hmm. can't figure out that I'm trying to communicate information to you with my gaze and my pointing Mm -hmm. about where the food is. Um, You do exactly that same test with a, with a dog and they'll immediately pick it up on the first trial. They get that, you, that humans often try to communicate with them, that there's this give and take about learning, and they're very cued into the particular kinds of cues that humans use, such as eye gaze and pointing and mm-hmm. so on. Um, And so when our question is about how do individuals learn from each other, in some ways primates are not as good of a model in some ways as as dogs might be. And so this is what we're hoping to do uh, in the new Canine Cognition Center is to start studying these questions about social learning to compare how dogs make sense of the world using human cues and compare and contrast that with what a human child might do in the same situation.
0: Do you have any sense of uh, how many dogs you would need to do sort of a scientifically meaningful study? Mm-hmm.
1: So there's been lots of dog cognition studies out there. Usually the sample sizes are on the order of about you know between 20 and 50 dogs, depending mm-hmm. on uh, how big the size of the effect is. Um, the goal for us is the more the more dogs we can test, the more we can learn about these subtle breed differences Um, and the more we can make comparisons, not just dogs versus humans or dog versus primates, but kind of within the class of dogs, which breeds are doing what and and who's specialized for what.
0: Dogs, uh, of course, have often been referred to as man's best friend, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we perceive them, many of them, as very loyal. Is there any any scientific reason to believe that um, the desire to be liked, or uh, a capacity for empathy
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, makes a person better at learning.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think the our degree of being able to kind of automatically pick up on other people's cues seems to for sure help learning. Um, in the case of animals, what we know is that your your very tolerance around being around other individuals can affect the degree to which you can learn, particularly from some of these cues that I was just telling you about. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been this fantastic case trying to test this. Um, Particularly trying to test this question about how much you you get in terms of social learning through domestication. And it happened not in the case of domesticated dogs, but in this case, it's a novel case of domesticated foxes. Hmm. Um, So over the past few decades in Russia, there's been a team of scientists who have been asking this question, what does it take to domesticate an animal? Um, And they've chosen to do this with wild foxes. They've been doing this over.
0: Foxes are very close to dogs, aren't they? Yeah, Yeah. I mean over, but but
1: not domesticated, most wild ones, these guys. Uh, And so what the scientists did was just to bring a group of wild foxes in and they picked the ones to breed just based on how close they got to the people. So in a big pan of foxes, whoever got closest to the human experimenters is like, all right, you guys are the domesticated group, we'll breed you guys, and the other guys, what the scientists refer to as the wild type. And the question is what, they just did this over and over generations. What they found though was that in addition to breeding in more tolerance around people, they also got all these other traits in for free. Um, So the domesticated foxes have uh, floppy ears, just like domesticated dogs. Um, They have uh, what's called piebald coats, which is a sort of coat color that often has these little white patches, just like not only domesticated dogs, but domesticated cows and horses Mm. and so on. Um, Interestingly, you get smaller brain size relative to body. um, And you also get uh, lower cortisol levels, so lower stress hormones. Um, The amazing thing is, even though they were just picking based on who got closer to humans, you get all this other stuff for free. Uh, and uh, another canine cognition researcher by the name of Brian Hare has done some cognition studies on these domesticated foxes versus the wild-type the wild type ones. And what he finds is that these domesticated foxes are also better at learning from these human cues than the wild-type foxes. Mm. So even though these foxes weren't, weren't domesticated for that, he, they weren't being bred to pay attention to these cues specifically something about the domestication process allowed the foxes to pick up on these cues better than their wild-type colleagues. Um, And I think this is a lovely example of this case that just being the kind of critter who's comfortable around other social agents can allow you to be around them enough to pick up on these cues that might really help you learn about the social world.
0: You mentioned cortisol and stress. I'm going to take a question from uh, Sheila, who emailed us. Mm -hmm. uh, And her question is, since animals and humans both Uh, experience stress and respond to it what can we learn from animal behavior about ways to modify our response so we can uh... so we can not make stressful situations worse
1: Mm I mean, I think this is one of the the, the big topics that folks who, who study the biology of stress are doing is to try to figure out animal models for some of these kinds of things. Um, you know, as for what answers we've gotten so far, I'm not sure we've gotten some some clear answers from other animals just yet. I mean, one of the things that we we've learned and that we've been studying at the field site is that there seem to be really interesting individual differences in in individuals' responses to stress. Um, you see this a lot in the context of the field site where you see. Uh, animals at different spots of the hierarchy reacting completely differently to stressful situations. And we can use some of these individual differences to try to gain insight into some of the mechanisms that underlie stressful responses and hopefully some of this work will tell us something about what we can do better.
0: Another question, this one from Mike H., also by email. Is jealousy inherent in humans uh, or is it a learned trait and is there anything we can learn from primates and dogs Uh, about uh, a a complex human emotion like jealousy? Like jealousy.
1: Great question. It turns out that there's actually some cool research on this very question, both in capuchin monkeys and in dogs, Hmm. Um, and this is about jealousy of a particular form, cases where you are jealous because another individual has something that's better than, than you have. And how do you react to that? Uh, so there was a famous experiment with capuchins uh, by Sarah Brosden and, and Franz de Waal and their colleagues um, where they set subject capuchin monkeys up with a situation in which they might be jealous. So they're doing this trading task that I've just described. They're trading with an experimenter, and the subject monkey is getting only cucumbers. But the experimenters varied what the other guys got. So in one case, the other monkeys that they're watching play this task too are getting cucumbers. That's fine. They react totally fine to that. The question is, what happens when the other monkeys they see trading are getting something better? So the other monkeys are getting a grape, which in Kapiuchin world is like the most delicious food ever. And what they find is that uh, the subject monkeys who are trading and just get the cucumber, they stop trading for the cucumber. They either reject the cucumber when they get it, so they just throw it on the floor. This food that they otherwise liked, now that the, somebody else is getting something better, they just throw the food on the floor, or they refuse to trade. Um, and in some, some ways, this is, a, this is a result that's been heralded as monkeys demanding equal pay for equal work. <laughs> um, so it, it, these are, there are hints that the animals are feeling something like jealousy when they're, when they're experiencing these effects. Um, it's still tricky for us to measure whether it's jealousy per se, but at least other animals seem to be reacting, not on the basis of what they themselves are absolutely getting, but what mm-hmm. they're getting relative to what somebody else is getting. Um, there are hints that uh, dogs may be showing similar effects effects. So Frederica Ranga and colleagues um, have done similar types of studies with with dogs. In this case, dogs are doing some behavior, they're giving paw, and they're getting rewarded for giving paw. And the subject dog in question is is giving paw, and he's not getting any rewards, and he's watching another dog, his kind of sibling dog from his house, uh, do the same thing, and he's getting rewarded for what he does. And what you find is that the subject dogs, when When they're not getting rewarded and nobody's getting rewarded, it's fine. But when they're not getting rewarded and and somebody else is, they stop giving paw, they stop wanting to play, and so on. So there are hints that other animals are reacting um, on the basis of what others get. Um, Whether that's something akin to jealousy, as as we know about it in the human species, is a tricky question.
0: So based on the entire body of your work so far, what are what are some of the most deeply rooted cognitive habits, whether they're good ones or bad ones, that human beings seem to, seem to
1: have? Yeah, so we see rudiments of some kinds of cognitive strategies across different domains of knowledge. So I talked about one, which is this idea that we seem to have some really early core principles for thinking about small numbers of objects out there. Turns out we have similarly deeply rooted capacities for thinking about simple physical intuition. So it seems like we know things about um, how objects move in space and the objects won't move through one another, for example. Um, We also seem to have pretty deeply rooted intuitions about what it means to be in the social world. Um, So we seem to kind of automatically know that some individuals have minds and are alive and are social creatures Mm -hmm. versus some individuals are like couches and tables and there's a big divide between the two of those. Turns out that all of those intuitions seem to emerge really early in human development um, in the sorts of experiments that Karen Wynn and others do and all of those same intuitions seem to be present in other non-human primates too. Um, So there seem to be a set of rich things that are kind of these core capacities that are there early on in life. Um, In terms of some of the, the dumber strategies, I think one of the ones that we've seen robustly in other animals is this idea that we seem to think about our choices relative to what others are getting or relative to what we expected what we were going to get before. Um, and this is pretty powerful because it suggests that our decisions aren't based on some ab- getting some absolute amount of food or some absolute amount of wealth or some, something absolute. All of our decisions are based on this relative framing. You know, If we see somebody else getting more, then that affects what we think we get ourselves. If we expected to get more or we expected mm. to get less, that changes how we evaluate things. Um, and this seems to be a pretty deep-rooted strategy that we see both across our economic studies and across some of these social studies as well.
0: Mm-hmm. You spend so much time thinking and studying how uh, learning in general. Uh, do you find that uh, you are consciously changing the way that you think mm-hmm. as you uh, learn about some of the the less rational and silly ways that human beings in general make decisions?
1: Yeah, it d- it definitely changes the way you think about things yourself. I mean, this qu- this. Uh, I, I can just give one personal example. So we were starting to do these studies on kind of risk and loss aversion and um, and seeing how salient these kinds of biases were in the monkeys. And this was around the same time that I was sort of setting up my benefits account at Yale, you know, <laughs> where they give you this sort of quiz about, you know, what are your preferences. And I sort of started taking the quiz and I'm, you know, thinking with my rationality head of like, you know, I just want to maximize expected value, you know, the heck with you know, loss aversion and so on. And I did my preferences and it, I came out you know extremely risk seeking and the, you know the guys in the benefits office were like, I don't know this is like it's, no one comes out this high and I was like, oh no this is gonna be terrible like um, and so I think that that it's a silly story, but it, it reflects something deep which is that um, these aren't necessarily preferences or intuitions you can overcome very easily mm. um, so just knowing that I have them doesn't make it any less salient. so mm. I might realize that loss aversion may or may not be a rational strategy, mm-hmm. but realizing that doesn't stop me from experiencing mm-hmm. it. And I think that's the puzzle of a lot of what we're learning uh, about the kinds of intuitions we see shared across other primates is that some of these things might be somewhat tricky to just turn off by just sort of thinking, like, oh, that's a silly thing to do, I should just shut it off. Um, the kinds of intuitions we're studying don't often work like that. And I think this is the challenge of understanding them better is that we might understand that we have these automatic intuitions, these evolved strategies for dealing with the world, but just recognizing them doesn't mean they're going to be that quick to go away and that's a challenge for setting up policies that kind of circumvent these things or kind of go around them even though they're not going to overcome these strategies necessarily but you might be able to kind of work with them rather than work against them
0: switching from research to teaching for a minute you teach one of the very most popular classes at Yale uh... sex evolution and human nature mm-hmm. just briefly describe the class and give us some of your thoughts about uh, why you think it's so popular um, uh, leaving aside how good you are as a teacher, of course, <laughs> right. and uh, and and some of the uh, obvious reasons why. Uh, People in their early twenties might be interested and in course class. on sex. Well, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I think that might really be the reason the class is so popular. Is because it has sex kind of glaringly in the title. If it was just evolution and human nature, the enrollments might <laughs> sort of tank terribly. But uh, but the the goal of the class is really to deal with this puzzle of what is it that makes humans special. I mean, we're such a fantastically weird, interesting, complicated, annoying species. And I think you know every undergraduate and maybe every human wants to understand. How? What makes us tick? Why mm-hmm. are we the way we are? Um, and the, the, the logic of the class is that one way to get at this really deep, puzzling question is to take an evolutionary lens. That if we really want to understand what makes humans special, we need to understand where we came from over evolutionary time. And so the class starts with a kind of evolutionary look um, at, how, at, how first of all, how evolution works um, and how the evolutionary process works. Um, And that's when we get to sex, because what we quickly realize is that because we as humans are sexual reproducers, the sexual process and sexual evolution has very likely shaped the way that Mm. our species works. And so we kind of go through what it means to be a sexual reproducer, what are the different mating systems we see in the animal kingdom. Mm. We've kind of covered all these principles generally, and then we try to apply them to the human species. Um, And the frustrating thing I think my students experience in the course is that sometimes we're left with these big open scientific questions where we have better answers about what the mating species, what the the mating system is of a species like the buff-breasted sandpiper or a lion. Because it's observable. Exactly. And it just gets really tricky to ask the same questions with Mm -hmm. humans. It's just much harder to run the studies. Um, There's a, a famous study on uh, fruit fly mate choice about how the number of mates you have affects your reproductive success. And we can do that with fruit flies, because we can just take a fruit fly and vary. We can't do that in the same way with humans. Um, And the class ends up involving a lot of speculation, but kind of pushing the boundaries of what can we really learn through taking an evolutionary Mm -hmm. approach about our own species. Um, So I think that's part of the reason why the the students like it is it's just about this fundamental question that we all uh, we all want to know the answer to, and, and I think the evolutionary approach is a good way to get at it.
0: Do you also offer that as a... Um uh, sort of MOOC-style course or through o- open Yale courses?
1: Yeah, it's not on open Yale, but what we do do to offer, we offer it uh, as part of the Yale Summer Session. Okay. Um, and so any of your viewers who want to be part of the Yale Summer Session course, who want to take that course, have the opportunity to enroll in it through Yale Summer mm-hmm. Session. You've got to apply to Yale Summer Session, but uh, assuming you're in. Um, and it's offered as an online course right now. Um, the hope is that I will soon be adapting that course for something like a Coursera-style course, but that's in the kind of the two- or three-year plan. Got it. Um, but folks who really want to check out the course uh, can enroll in that course over the Yale Summer Session. Um, it's, it's in some ways an even more fun version of the course I teach live. The course I teach live is several hundred students, you know, mm-hmm. I'm kind of up there lecturing, but I don't often as much get a chance to get to know my students directly. Mm-hmm. The online course is about 15 people, um, so it really allows for a lot more in-depth discussion. I get to know the students better. Um, I've done it for the past two years and it's been really a, a uh, a fun pedagogical experience, so all your viewers should jump in and take it.
0: Uh, we're running out of time here, but uh, I did want to ask you, um, how should people who are interested in bringing their dogs to you get in touch? What's
1: Definitely, so uh, the best way to get in touch right now uh, is to drop us an email. Um, our email is canine.cognition at yale.edu, canine.cognition at yale.edu. Um, and just drop us a line and uh, tell us about your dog. What we'll do is we'll email you back with a link to our survey. Um, You'll go online and tell us a little bit about your dog and we'll be able to kind of schedule you up um, to get going and bring your dog in so we can learn something about their psychology. Our grand opening for the Canine Cognition Center uh, is December 2nd. We're gonna have a big opening ceremony, Um, but if you're excited to get involved sooner, we definitely would love your information sooner rather than later. So that's canine.cognition at yale.edu.
0: Laurie Santos, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks
1: to all of you for watching, and I hope you join us again next
0: time.